Like, yo, what if you can still feel a sense of justice without reaching out to the legal system? What if you still can have access to healing without punishment? What if this person who harmed you can do the hard work to never harm anyone ever again? Would that feel like justice for you? And if so, how can we support you in, in achieving that goal? Welcome back to Freedom Dreams. We are so excited about this new season in which we're talking to people who are building powerful solutions to violence. We as abolitionists are often accused of not taking violence seriously when that could not be further from the truth. We take violence and harm so seriously that we're trying to find solutions that actually prevent and address it. At the Detroit Justice Center, we are honored to be part of a community of builders, violence interrupters, healers, organizers, restorative justice practitioners, and movement lawyers that stretches from Detroit to Brooklyn to St. Louis to Jackson, Mississippi. And we're not building from scratch. We're building upon a foundation laid by elders and ancestors. Mike Milton is one of several organizers around the country that we're going to meet this season. He runs the Freedom Community Center in North St. Louis. Our mission is to build a movement of survivors, those who are directly impacted by violence, so that we can design systems that actually keep us safe, rooted in um, Black freedom, self-determination, and healing. They also use restorative and transformative justice practices to address incarceration. We make peace. Uh, we practice transformative responses to violence. But we also build power. We believe that any pathway towards doable change for Black people, for people um, who are poor, um, marginalized, um, queer people, femme people, the only way to real freedom is, is that if we gathered our collective liberation and we also fought against systems and created our own. So that's pretty much the work that we do in short. I'm Casey Rostro, Communications Director at the Detroit Justice Center. And I'm Amanda Alexander, the founding executive director of DJC. And this is Freedom Dreams. The show that knows another world is possible because we're talking to the people who are building it. People like the brilliant and open-hearted Mike Milton. How did you come to this work, Mike? I came to this work because I'm personally formerly incarcerated, um, but I had some some very transformative experiences through community, um, both before I was incarcerated and after, during and after. And a lot of that was like, yo, like people who loved me so much and was like, you know, there is ways that you can stop doing harm. Um, but also it, it takes an examination of, of why you do harm. And a lot of that was because I was harmed myself. I'm a survivor of sexual assault, but also gun violence and, and other type of types of violence in my communities. But really, it came down to what does it look like for us to dream of a future um, that does not depend on the legal system, that does not depend, that, that has other structures of accountability um, that I was raised in. So I was raised in, like, if we fought in our neighborhood, the community centers would come in and, like, break us up. You know, like, you go over there, I'm going to tell your mom, I'm going to tell your grandmother. Um, police wasn't really, you know, cycling in our communities when I was growing up. We we taught, we took care of ourselves. And so... Um, a lot of our work, a lot of me coming to this work is, is about reestablishing or really honoring the work of our ancestors um, who created systems to keep us safe and really uplifting systems that we know keep us safe in it in the long term. Thank you. That feels like it's been a running theme this season for us is like a lot of this isn't we're not creating it from scratch. We're building off of the work that so many 
elders and ancestors have already laid for us. So thank you. Casey, do you want to do the next question? Yeah. Before we have you sort of walk us through the process, what would you say are some of the root causes of violence in St. Louis? Yeah, I think the root causes of violence is the root cause in St. Louis is the root causes pretty much everywhere. We look at it as political violence taught us how violence happens in our communities. Because they have starved us of resources, because they have used public policy to divest from our communities, to divest from structures that actually keep us safe, our school systems, our healthcare systems, um, that has left us in a, in a state of starvation. And it was intentional. We know that the legal system is rooted in racial violence and white supremacy. We know that a lot of these policies, these public policies, redlining, housing, are rooted in capitalism and rooted in white supremacy. And so, yeah, I think that the, the core, the deep core of violence that happens in, in our communities was because they taught us about isolation. They taught us about violence, how to use systems and power and whiteness to, to uphold the system of white supremacy. And so before I even get into anything around community violence, um, we talk about that exact root, that if we have any choice, any, any hope of coming to a whole community again, we must address the systems and the, the policies and the legislation that actually caused harm. Thank you. Could you talk now about, um, could you describe the process that the Freedom Community Center undertakes to deal with incidents of harm? Could you walk us through the steps of that? Our first goal is one, in one of our programs, we have a, a program called Group Track Sponsored Recognizance. So the last five years I've been working in the bail work, um, figuring out ways in which we can eliminate cash bail in our communities um, as a system. And so far, we've won in a lot of ways. We went from, in 2018, about only 4% of people released on their own recognizance to now about 45 to 50% of people released on their own recognizance. The, the negative part of that is that it actually switched to now um, not having unaffordable cash bail to de facto unaffordable cash bail with no bond allowed determinations, which basically means that people are now trapped in cages without any options to get bail. And so what we do is, is that one, one half of our program is that we actually sponsored release with serious violence. So people who have been accused of second degree murder, people who are accused of um, robbery first, assault first, shooting, stabbings, um, families impact, impacted by death. We interview those inside of the jails, and then we advocate for their release into our process. Where they do they do twelve weeks of nonviolence courses. They also sign up for therapy if they if they want if they so choose to. But in that process, um, it's a restorative process around nonviolence that essentially helps them take accountability in their life. And then we use that work that they've done with us over the twelve weeks to advocate for their continued release or amendments of the charges or either their cases being dropped. So that's one half of it, is that we continue to fight in the bail realm by continue pretrial release um, through sponsor recognizance. The other half of our programming is we do community response to violence. So um, we have um, organizers who knock on doors every week, thousands of doors every week, um, to really ask them what the community needs and collect that data. But we also give them um, a number. And if they experience violence, if they see violence, if they hear of violence and they think that restorative justice could be the way, then we actually, then they can call us and then we send out a an outreach team who actually come and mediate the situation um, and, does, and do a restorative justice process or a healing justice process to, to bring us towards reconciliation, healing, and freedom. Um, and a lot of that work is done before they even get to the legal system. And so we would call that community response. 
Um, and so that's one half of our work uh, if our transformative response to violence work is that we're on the ground. We're in the neighborhoods. Um, we're literally sometimes snatching guns out of people's hands. Um, we're literally protecting women. Um, and a lot of that is based around our, our thoughts or our survivors. How do we get survivors to immediate safety? I mean, how can we support with support them um, in using transformative practices like pod mapping, like family mediation? How can we equip this neighborhood to really use these tools on their own so they can both stop violence before even violence happens, but also know how to respond and have the, the tools and skills to respond to violence when it does happen. But we just support that neighborhood. This is incredible, Mike. And I have you know, lots of questions that flow from that. The first one, though, is kind of a smaller one. So for those who might not be familiar with what pod mapping is, can you talk about what that means in practice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that the antidote to violence is always belonging, always community, always care. So pod mapping is really an opportunity to assess the people who are in your life who can either hold you accountable when you want to do violence or also interrupt violence when um, we know violence is aware. Like, for an example, we had one domestic violence couple that we were working with. Well, I'll put it this way. We had a couple who were in the cycle of domestic violence, um, and they decided that they wanted to stay together. And they had got pretty violent for a while. Uh, they were shooting at each other at one point. It's pretty violent. And it's really, a, a you know, we really want to honor people's self-determination in, in whatever decision that they make. And so... Um, one one of the things that we did was that we we lit, we said, look, yo, who are the people that you can call um, that knows your patterns, who know y'all, who can really expose some of these things to the, and bring it to the light, but also who you can trust, who can interrupt in case it happens. And then one of them, I mean, one of the people who was in their pod was the next door neighbor, right? And so we did some work with this family, with this couple to figure out, like, what are some of the cycles? Uh, when does it happen? What are some of the trigger points for both of you that for, for both of y'all that this happens? Um, and one of them was like, you know, it really happens after he come home from work. He's really tired. He's really exhausted. And, um, you know, it, and we never know how those days are going to go. And so one of the things that um, she wanted was she wanted her neighbor to be available um, after 9 p.m. From like 9, to, she gave us a window. I'm available from 9 to like 1.30. That if something happens or if I hear something, I'll come and knock on the door. And then I have these 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 numbers that I also can call that we all worked on together. So really, pod mapping is a network. How can we establish your community around you, who you trust, who you love, who you feel like you belong to, and, and vice versa? And then how also, how can we equip them to, to support you when you need it the most? And what are some of the things that we need to be aware of so we can step in when it's time? And so that's really what it is, 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 is creating a new system around, a new system of support and family around each individual that knows how to love them in times when they feel um, scared, afraid, hurt, um, but also when they when they feel like they need to hurt uh, or the need to harm, um, and and really, what does it look like ultimately to 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 slowly but surely walk out of that process along with this community? Because we know that a lot of violence happens in isolation, which we, which is exactly why we must stop the legal system. We must abolish the legal system because it generates violence. It's predicated on isolation. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is predicated on on isolation. It's predicated on shame. It's, pre- it's predicated on literal blame, literal blame, right? So how do we create systems that the literal antithesis of that exists where love, belonging, and care and compassion can happen? And that's really where the, the pod mapping is really centered in.
We'll be back after a short break. Hey, I'm Sydney, and I'm the office manager at the Detroit Justice Center. At DJC, we envision a just city where we have shifted our abundance away from jails, prisons, and policing and into true community safety. Where affordable, accessible housing is the norm instead of foreclosures and displacement. Where we have a thriving solidarity economy and communities set the agenda for development in their neighborhoods. We envision a just Detroit rooted in solidarity, compassion, and care. And we're fighting hard alongside our partners to make it real. To join us in our mission of creating more just cities, visit DetroitJustice.org slash donate. What does it mean for you to take a survivor-centered approach to violence, and what does it look like in practice? It's a beautiful question. A lot of the training that we do at FCC um, is around empathy and listening. And what does empathetic listening look like? Um, so a survivor-centered approach is literally sitting with survivors of harm and listening to what they need, to what they want, to what... Um, they find is safe for them what they need in order for them to be safe again. Um, I might get choked up a couple of times, y'all, because one, I'm emotional, but two, we just lost one of our participants mm. um, last week or two weeks ago. Um, but it's it's literally sitting with someone and listening without judgment, without understanding, with understanding. It's a process of of putting your vulnerable process of putting yourself in their shoes and really listening for what they need with the realization that rage may be there, that sorrow may be there, that grief may be there, that lovelessness may be there, and not judging their emotions at the time, but also taking their guidance as they figure out what they need in order for them to be safe long-term. And so, I, but that does not mean um, that we, you know, that we respond to everything that the survivor wants as us being a community-based organization because sometimes the survivor might say that I want incarceration, you know? And we don't try to change their minds, but we do present options for them. Like, yo, what if you can still feel a sense of justice without reaching out to the legal system? What if you still can have access to healing without punishment? What if this person who harmed you can do the hard work to never harm anyone ever again, would that feel like justice for you? And if so, how can we support you in, in achieving that goal? So really, I just say it means listening. It means care and compassion in a way that's communal. And it means facilitating a process where, they can, where one can feel safe possibly again. That's beautiful. Um, it's reminded me of conversations that I've heard Danielle talk about with Common Justice, where they say, you know, we offer this opportunity and it's something like 90, 95% of people take it. What has been your experience of having those conversations in St. Louis? Is it the same or are there many people who are still wanting to opt for incarceration and indictment and all of that? What, what have you found? Every time, you know, Danielle say that, I get chills. Um... Popping in here real quick. So Danielle, who I just mentioned, that's Danielle Sarad. She's also a guest this season on the show. Danielle runs Common Justice, a restorative justice program in New York City. That 90 to 95% stat I just gave, I'm talking about the fact that when victims of serious harm who have been given the choice of seeing the person who harmed them incarcerated or seeing them take part in a restorative justice process, 90% of them choose Common Justice. 
What has been your experience of having those conversations in St. Louis? Is it the same or are there many people who are still wanting to opt for incarceration and indictment and all of that? What what have you found? That is not our, our exact experience because we reached out to people very close to the harm. Mm-hmm. And so we were under the understanding that this will take time for folks. Yeah. And we don't try to rush through that time. For an example, there was a 13-year-old who unfortunately stole his his grandmother's car, picked up his cousin, picked up one of his friends. The car lost control, and um, he lost control of the car, and he ran into a tree. And unfortunately, uh, all three of his friends, including his cousin, had died in the car. Mm-hmm. They charged him with four counts of manslaughter. Now, we're dealing with this family, right? Like, where the the mother, the mothers of both the person who did the harm and the person who, who lost their baby are like, I don't even know what to do with all of this. Yeah. So we spent, we did uh, one RJ circle with them. We did a couple of RJ circles with them. But the first RJ circle we did with them, um, it was almost like six hours. And um, they had finally got, at the end of that six hours, out of all of the pain and rage... Um, all of the the fact that I lost my baby, all of the fact that your son, who if you wasn't on, you know, your substances, he probably would be in a better position. Like all of this blame pointing at each other. Uh, we have finally got to a point where, where the, the, the mother who lost their child said, we don't have to lose another one because of this incident. But that took so much labor. Yeah. And it's so much... Uh, work to make the space safe Mm. and it took so much hope for her for her to finally say okay i don't want to pursue prosecution for him because we we don't have to lose another one because of this and so although that's not our direct experience when when it comes to survivors um and that's because we are so close to the harm what we do often see and we don't we don't you know measure it get (laughs) but what we do often see is that when you are patient enough they can dream of other alternatives themselves Mm -hmm. and it's because they deeply feel within them that there's ways to to get to to get to justice or that this legal system will actually give me the justice that i want like even if he does get incarcerated for three counts of manslaughter it will not bring my baby back it won't and so i think survivors i think danielle is right the survivors have an innate sense of what they need and they know that a structure like the legal system, like the prison industrial complex is incapable of providing the justice that they need or the healing that they need. That part I know is true. Thank you, Mike. And to clarify for listeners who might not understand the distinction. So when you're saying that you're working with people who are very close to the harm, you're saying closer in time often than what common justice is able to yes. do. Because my understanding is that Often those are cases that have gone, you know, through the um, the charging, the indictment stage. So they're further along. It's further after the fact of the harm. Yes. And you guys, part of your, you know, intervention here is that it's much earlier in the process. Like sometimes you're saying, yeah. you know, particularly the um, sponsored recognizance work, like that might be within hours of something happening, right? Yeah. Um, yes, for sure. Yeah, we work all the way. They call it intercepts. Zero to four. Zero is like pre-charge to no legal system. Four is uh, post-indictment to incarceration to sentencing. Mm-hmm. So we worked literally um, both in our organizing work and our direct service work from the literal beginning stages within hours of the harm all the way into post-indictment. We do have some post-indictment cases too. Wow. Uh, the beauty that we learned from common justice is that 
you know, um, with the agreements with the courts, but we do a set, we do it differently because we don't have agreements with the prosecutors. But we literally show up to court hearings in full community power. Yeah. So the community coming up, including the survivor at the sentencing and say, no, we actually disagree with whatever you're trying to do. Right. And it has to actually organize the judges, organize the prosecutors, organize the defense attorneys to listen to us as community power, uh, which I love. You know, we don't have the same luxury as, as Danielle to to have that relationship with the prosecutor's office, nor do we want one. Yeah. But we, we actually have seen that it's possible for the community to have enough power to literally stop the tra- the tracks of violence that the inc- that incarceration does, and so that's why we kind of we kind of look at it from that scale. Literally, from uh, we can work with people who are who are about to be released from the hospital, got shot twenty four hours before, is intending or harming someone, kind of like the the hospital intervention work, mm-hmm. all the way till they've been waiting in pretrial for two and a half years because the the length of stay of pretrial detention in St. Louis City is about three hundred and eighty five days, more than a year. So they could, they're not even going to trial yet. So we work with people who are years from the harm and also really early on in, in between the process of the harm. Got it. Got it. That's incredible, that range. Um, one other question before we move on. So, um, Mike, this question of community power has come up. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what has it taken to build that up? Um, my understanding is that it sounds like some of this is connected to other fights in the city, like the fight to close the workhouse. Can you talk about like maybe backing us up in yes. two years? What has it taken to build the power to this point? Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, shout out to Action St. Louis. Shout out to our city defenders, my comrades in this work. Mm. It takes a lot, a lot, a lot of labor, a lot of one-on-ones. I remember someone told me, actually, Rich McClure, he told me a long time ago, if you're not doing at least 40 one-on-ones a, a, a week, you're not organizing. Also, a lot of connecting with folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but over the years, I will say, because of the closing of the workhouse, because of the electoral power that Action St. Louis has been able to establish, a lot of it has been, um, and, and because we also used the, the, the gasoline that Ferguson, that Ferguson gave us, a worldwide revolutionary time in our, in our country and in our world. Yes. Um, we've used that to really flip the political landscape on its head and really empower um, the people to have real political choice, real political will and fight um, in every election cycle. So from both of our prosecutors are progressive, if that's a such thing. Um, the whole board of aldermen in the city has been flipped to where everybody's progressive now. Um, it has taken us narrative shift, doing narrative shifting work locally in the St. Louis. How do we switch? How do we not allow of conservative politics? How do we not allow um, even liberal politics, centrist politics to to drive the narrative around violence in our communities? How do we continue to bring us back that the reason why we're here is because of the years of disinvestment of our communities, the years of of moving us around, black flight and white flight, the years of of, of closing our schools. I really like that, let that be the, the playing field for where we start the conversation. We did not get here overnight. We did not get here because black people chose to get in the car and drive around and shoot people. We got here because of the political violence that now exists. And now that we've risen that from the top, we've risen that and brought that to the, to the surface, we're able to do something about it in real time. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it has been narrative shifting work. It has been a lot of connecting with folks, um, specifically FCC's version of work in that is that we have a, a biweekly meeting that we hold um, black only space where we bring in survivors of violence and we literally just ask them like yo what do y'all want <laughs> mm. um what do you dream 
if we have $567 million of the general fund budget and only 3% of that money goes towards social services, a point three, excuse me, but over 60% goes towards public safety. We know that arresting incarceration models does not work for us, do not keep us safe. If so, we would be the safest city in the country. Mm. What if you had $500 million? What would you want? And grandmothers who are, who probably voted for three strikes in 92 um, are saying, yo, you know, I, if we had community centers, <laughs> right? If we had things for people to do, if we were able to have jobs for our young folks and our young people to have to, to have things to do, what if we had a basketball night? They dreamed about options mm-hmm. and it really empowered them. So now when they want to use ARPA funds to give to policing for, for, the, for elevators or, or cars, these same grandmothers could be like, no, 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 we've been doing that for years. It does not work. Now is a once in a life, a once in a, a lifetime chance for us to meaningfully invest into our streets, into lights, into our schooling, into our health. I demand that you do something different, and I think that's what really helped us change and flip the power dynamic on its head. Could you talk a little bit about why it's important for you and for SCC to do this work outside of the criminal legal system? It's important because the legal system is not for Black people. It's for protecting uh, capital. It's for protecting businesses. It's for protecting property. It's not about um, actual public safety. Um it's important because people are black people, poor people, femme people, queer people are geniuses. They're geniuses. For an example, in the 1960s, the, the, the first thought around domestic violence shelters came from black women in neighborhoods creating spaces in their basements because um, they, they, they wanted to create a space for people to be safe when their, their partner is, is harming them. So they would have magazines in their, in their basements and they would have coffee and they would have warm blankets, right? White women, and I can specifically say that with citation, um, in the Violence Against Women Act, use the beauty of that, in- of, that, of that ingenuity, of that creativity, and said, let's create domestic violence shelters. And let's do something around uh, white feminism. Let's do something around, um, and cause, let's do something around interrupting, viol- interrupting this violence, but, but let's, let's involve mandatory arrest on the first call when domestic violence calls happen, which really exploded, exploded mass incarceration, right? And so because Black people, poor people, there's a scripture I come from the church world that says those who are poor in spirit are rich in faith, right? Poor people, Black people, femme people have been forced to create systems in order for them to be safe because they never had a system where they were safe. And so it's even more, it's, it's so much more important for us to tap into that creativity, tap into that ingenuity, because one, we will create something better and different. But two, because the legal system is ultimately generative of violence. What are your freedom dreams? And what do you, like, 50, 100 years from now, hope is the legacy for your work? Oh, my goodness. I want black people to be free, happy, and whole. I want black people to have the autonomy to create what they want to create. I want black people to have family, strong family structures, and picnics and barbecues like we used to. 
I want black people to not be starving for resources, to be self-determined, to not operate 90% of the time at over-regulated and overstimulated, and having the tools to, to, to address harm themselves, to address their inner harm and their inner voice. I want black people to have joy. That's my freedom dream. Sounds a lot like heaven. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mike. I'm so deeply, deeply grateful um, for you and for all of your work. Thank y'all. Freedom Dreams is a production of the Detroit Justice Center. Special thanks to our team, Zach Rosen, our producer. The Freedom Dreams theme song is by Asante. Our artwork is by Gunnar and Hobbs. If you want to learn more about today's episode, head to freedomdreamspodcast.com. You can email us a voice memo of your freedom dream at freedomdreams at detroitjustice.org. You can also write to us on social media. We're Freedom Dreams Pod on Instagram and Freedom Dream Pod on Twitter. And if you feel compelled to donate to the work that we do, you can find us at detroitjustice.org slash donate. And lastly, if you love this show and want us to find a wider audience, please leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify.